One name that you don't see on many top ten lists when it comes to leadership is the Apostle Paul. And I searched some top ten lists over the internet this last week just to see who, who were some of the people that they considered the greatest leaders in history. Paul's not on any of them. Muhammad's on a bunch of them. Christ is not on very many of them either. But Paul is not. He's generally well regarded as a theologian and as a scholar, but a leader? Well, yes, he was. And it's in our paragraph today that we see one of the essentials of great leadership. It's, it's an essential that shines through in the life of the Apostle Paul. And that's the essential of really caring about the people that you lead. Now, granted, there's more to leadership than just that. But you cannot say you're a great leader if you don't care about the people that you lead. You might be a visionary. You might be a great strategist on the battlefield or a tactician. But in terms of being a leader, a leader of people must really care about those that are led. Courage, of course, is important. But you got to care. The ability to delegate is important, but you have to care. Paul cared. He was not emotionally detached from the people that he led. He had a passion for Jesus Christ. And he cared deeply about our Lord. But he also cared deeply about our Lord's children. And that was the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians. It was all that group, but it's also, by extension, you and me. No really good teacher will ever be completely emotionally detached from the ones that they teach. No really good teacher. You can be competent in certain fields. In fact, you can be really competent in a field and not a really good teacher in that field. Paul was the great teacher because he cared about the people that were led. No leader, whether it's a teacher or any kind of leader, no leader is emotionally detached from those that he or she leads. And as we read the words for our passage this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 19 through 21, this becomes abundantly clear. Paul says this, all this time you've been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you. Actually, it's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all of for your upbuilding, beloved. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I might find that you not to be what I wish and may be found by you not to be what you wish. That perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. For those who minister for Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the ultimate role model. And by the way, today we're going to be speaking primarily about those in public ministry, but I've got to tell you, every single person here has a ministry. So this does apply at one level to every single person in here, although Paul's speaking about himself. Nobody here is an apostle. You're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. There are no apostles. There are people that call themselves apostles, but there are no legitimate apostles today. But all of us serve Jesus Christ, and so he is the role model. 
I suppose that people like Patton or MacArthur, Napoleon or Caesar or perhaps Reagan, Thatcher, Jefferson or Churchill could be role models in their particular fields, some militarily, some politically. We can think of role models in business or innovation. It's also pretty subjective, but there's no doubt that the role model for leadership in ministry is the one that we minister for. He sets the standards. Paul's already talked about this earlier in this letter to the Second Corinthians, or second letter to the Corinthians, when he says we're ambassadors for Christ, we're representing him. It's as though he's making his case through us. So we've already seen the principle. And Jesus Christ cared. For Jesus, you matter. The Corinthians mattered. Those two million rebellious Jews in the wilderness mattered to Jesus Christ. For Jesus, you were worth saving. I was worth saving. You have significance. He loves you. He sacrificed everything for you. For the person in Christian leadership, ministry should never be just a job. In fact, when I leave in the mornings, I, I try not to ever say, if somebody says, where are you going? Well, I'm going to work. Because I don't look at it that way. Nothing wrong with going to work. Everybody does it. But I try to remind myself consistently, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to a job. I'm going to a ministry. I'm going to serve the Lord that day. You see, because if ministry ever de degenerates into just a job, then it would be like, well, like Chuck Swindoll said at a service that I attended one time, he said, give the labor his wages and let him go. If it becomes just a job, just let it go. Do something else. That's what I've told people. Do something else. I remember walking out of a chapel service one time, a seminary where I attended, and, and it was a phenomenal service. It was a person that's with the Lord now, but that was an icon at the time, and he wouldn't have liked to be called that, but he was, author of many books, Mentor to many people, including both myself and to Will Johnson. He's just a phenomenal guy. Recently passed away at age 99, and the service was incredible. And I walked out on cloud nine, but I noticed the two guys in front of me were kind of talking the whole time, and they weren't paying attention, and, and, and a little bit disrespectful, I thought. Even if they didn't like the message, they should respect it because of the person that was up there giving it had earned the respect. So we're walking out, and I, I confronted them. I thought about turning them around and, and just kind of punching one of them in the face just because, just because it seemed like the right thing to do. But at the time, they had a rule against that in the seminary. Do they still have that rule? They still have the rule. Okay. So I decided it would be better not to do that, but at least I asked them. What? Especially for faculty. Yeah, especially for faculty. Well, I wasn't on the faculty, so I might could have got away with it. No. I know faculty would probably like to from time to time. But no, but I just, at least asked them, I said, I noticed you seem to have a problem with the message in there. I just wanted to know, what's up with that? And they said, well, you know, it's just, it's okay. And I, I said, what are you doing here? I mean, if that was just okay, what are you doing here? And the guy was honest. I got to appreciate that. And he turned around to me and said, I need a job, man. I said, and so you're here? You're here at Dallas Seminary because you want a job? You're going to spend this kind of money and go through this kind of effort because you want a job? You need to find something else to do. You see, ministry should never be just a job. There's more to it than that. You've got to emotionally invest yourself in the people that you lead. And then that goes with all kind of professions. 
Certainly in the medical profession, I prefer medical doctors that in mostly invest themselves in their patients. I know they can't do it all the time because patients die. My, my sister at one time got out of the medical field that she was in because her patients died all the time. That was just the field that she was in, and she couldn't handle it. It was, it was too emotionally difficult for her, but you've got you to invest yourselves in the lives of people. Now, for much of the last three chapters, and we're almost finished with 2 Corinthians now. It's been a long study between 1st and 2nd. Uh, but we're almost finished with it. But the, most of the last three chapters, it seems as though Paul has been spending a lot of time chewing out the Corinthians. It seems like that's his major function, he's, that he's angry with them, that he's chewing them out. But now as he wraps it up in this, this defense, and I put that in air quotes, this defense that he's been making kind of comes to a head. And as he finishes this section, he's going to let him know, actually, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. Because the Apostle Paul loved them. I told you before, throughout this study, if it had been me or anybody that I know, frankly, anybody that I know in ministry, and we'd have been ministering to this Corinthian bunch, we'd have let it go a long time ago. I mean, the stuff they said about him, the stuff they did to him, the way they tried to trash his reputation, it was almost unforgivable, but not for Paul. I mean, but it was almost unforgivable at one level. But he didn't do it. You see, these people, instead of defending him like they should have, as we studied a couple of weeks ago, Instead of defending him like they should have, they joined in the chorus of the criticism. And he had led them to Christ. He was their spiritual father in that sense with the little F, father. They were led in a really bad direction by some people that didn't care about him at all. And they were buying it. And so now as Paul finishes up this very personal letter, and remember we said this is probably one of the two most personal letters that Paul ever wrote. The little book of Philemon and 2 Corinthians. Least theological, most personal. And I find that interesting, don't you? It's probably the least theological, point by point, principle by principle, but it's the most, it's the most personal. But haven't you learned a lot from it? I, I certainly have. I've learned a lot from studying it, I, I guarantee you. One of the things that we learn is that you got to care. Now, now, Paul cared first because he knew Jesus. And he knew that Jesus loved these folks. He loved Jesus. Jesus loved them. So he loved them. That's the way Paul felt about it. If Jesus loved them, then he would really love them. It's really that simple. Have you ever, I know you have, have you ever seen one of these videos that floats around the internet where somebody's had a hidden camera on a nursery or in a, in a daycare center or something? You've probably seen those. And the camera will show one of the workers abusing one of the children. As a parent and as a grandparent, when I see those things, it just, oh boy, you just, you just want to, you want the person thrown in jail. Because you've entrusted somebody you care very much about to someone else to take care of them. And then when that person abuses the child, instead of taking care of the child, then that's a, that's a pretty serious crime, I think. How do you think Jesus feels? I think God feels. When he delegates leadership, and he does that, it's not a bad word in Christianity. Sometimes, sometimes the leadership has been abused, so we kind of think it is, but it's not a bad word. God has this delegated system of leadership in the church where he says, okay, I want you to listen to that guy right there or to this group of men right here. They have, I have put them in charge of you. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. Them ruling over you. That's language we really don't like to hear anymore, but that's the language of the Bible. So if God gives someone that kind of leadership, over his children, his beloved and dear children, and then that person who's in that leadership doesn't lead in the way that he would lead, 
How do you think God feels? It's like that hidden camera in the nursery. You just did what to my child? Well, they were misbehaving. Well, yeah, they might have been misbehaving, but that's not how I would have handled it. I never authorized you to do that. I authorized you to build my sheep up, not to destroy the sheep. There's no biblical authorization anywhere, anywhere for anybody in leadership in, at any level in spiritual ministry to destroy those that he's leading. Edify, to correct, certainly to, to, to exercise reproof, rebuke, correction, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, but to destroy, never. So don't think that what Paul's been doing from chapter 10 all the way until now, and he'll finish it in the next chapter, don't think that what he's been doing has been anything but edifying for the Corinthians. Yes, he had to get their attention. And yes, he used some divine, divinely sanctioned irony. Sarcasm, if you prefer. Yes, he did use it. But he used it to get their attention. And now he tells us, <clears throat> now he tells us in verse 19 that it's for their benefit. On the surface, it looks very much like Paul's been defending himself to the Corinthians. And on one level, that might be a reasonable conclusion to come to. But now Paul's going to clarify what he's really been doing. He understands, first and foremost, that it's to his own master that he stands or falls. And for those of you that are in ministry already, more public ministry I'm talking about, or that are studying to put yourself in that position, or that even think you might be in that position, let me stress that this morning. Paul's going to say it. It's in the sight of God, but I want to stress it ever so strongly. At the end of the day, you answer to your boss. And that's the boss with a capital B. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. If he's happy with what you did, what you said, how you said it, then you're okay. If he's not happy, it doesn't matter how many people come up to you at the door and tell you how great that was. If he's not happy, that doesn't count. So that's the first thing you need to remember. Now that's true in pastoral ministry. It's true if you're teaching a Sunday school class. It's true in what, whatever ministry you have inside the church or outside the church. If God's happy with you, it's okay. If he's not happy with you, it doesn't matter how many people praise you. We live in this, this celebrity ship culture in Christianity today. Don't buy into that. There's only one, one person that belongs on the cover of People magazine, in my opinion, that's Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I mean, just let everybody else off. In terms of celebrity ship, he should be the only one that we're looking to. So Paul is going to say here, my motives were an open book before God. God knows. God knows if I'm telling the truth or not. God knows if I love you or not. And he said, I'm, I'm comfortable with the way my relationship is with God and how he feels about all this. It's the same with us, isn't it? We can fool people, but you can't fool God. You can, you can have an entire list of ministry accomplishments that you just subtly drop on people. You know what I mean. Just kind of, you just kind of slip them into an email. Uh, you know, I'd like to go to dinner with you, but I gave a lot of money to the poor this week. <laughs> Can't do it. You buying? If you're buying, I'll go. <laughs> you know, we, we do silly things as Christians. I mean, we really do. God knows. He's keeping count. You don't have to. We've already studied that in, in the fifth chapter of this same letter. He knows. God knows the truth. On the other hand, People can say whatever they want about you. They can say whatever they want about your motives, and nobody's going to know the difference. Winston Churchill once said that a lie can make its way around the world before the truth gets around the room. And that's truth. Gossip can get all the way around the world 
before the truth can ever even get out the door. But the thing is, God knows, and you need to take comfort in that at the end of the day, and that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. God knows what his feeling about the Corinthians was. God knows why he didn't get to make that visit as soon as he wanted to make it. We said that a long time ago. Remember that? He was supposed to go. He didn't get to go. God knows why all that's taking place. And the best thing you can do sometimes when you're faced with unfair criticism is just let it go and let God handle it because he knows the truth. Now, in this particular case, the only course open to Paul was to defend himself. He had to defend himself publicly because his ministry was at stake. So that's what we've seen, been seeing done here. So his public defense was actually for the benefit of the Corinthians. He's about building them up, not about tearing them down. The desired outcome for Paul in the Corinthian situation was their spiritual victory. Now, I think we all should understand that here. Certainly if you're a parent, or if you had parents, you should, you should understand this principle. When you discipline a child, you're not trying to hurt them. You might be trying to get their attention. There may be some pain involved, but you're not, your primary purpose is not to hurt them, is it? What's the primary purpose? To get their attention so you can correct the behavior so they don't do it again. That's the primary purpose. You want them to be victorious as a parent. As a parent, one of the greatest things you can do as a parent is to witness the spiritual success of your children. One of the first men that we ever ordained, actually there were two men we ordained at the same time, Gene Brown and Fred Stone. First people we ordained from this ministry. I said yesterday, and I meant it with all my heart, Fred Stone should have been ordaining me. I, know, I mean, it was, I felt really awkward ordaining him into ministry. He was the spiritual giant in the room, certainly not me. But one of Fred Stowe's deepest desires as he went through his last days was for a spiritual legacy for his children. He wanted to see the spiritual success of his kids and of his grandkids and of his great-grandkids. And isn't that what you want, too? Wouldn't you give up just about anything for that? To see your kids prosper spiritually? Now, if I was to put this a different way, wouldn't you give up just about anything to see your kids prosper financially? Some people are nodding their heads yes, other people are wondering about that. And I, I know what you're talking about. Yes, we want to see our offspring prosper financially. It would be really nice to see them do that. But what's really more important to you at the end of the day? Is it their financial prosperity or their spiritual prosperity? Now we put it that way, it's their spiritual prosperity. Everybody in here would agree with that. And that's the same thing Paul's saying here. That's all he's really saying as he finishes out chapter 12. I really want your spiritual prosperity. Your victory is my victory. When you win, I win. If you lose, it's not like I win. Paul deeply cared about them. All this time, you've been thinking that we're defending ourselves to you. That's an editorial we. Actually, it's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding Beloved, don't let that last word pass you by. Sometimes we do, we just kind of read over it. Paul's saying, listen, I want you to be spiritually victorious, beloved. Now, the last person I ever really heard that was able to pull that off with any consistency in a sermon was J. Vernon McGee. He, you know, he always called his audience beloved. Most of us can't really do that and pull it off. It almost seems dated. Paul's saying, let's put it this way. It's all for your upbuilding. I love you guys. Does that, make, does that bring it into the 21st century? I love you guys. 
That's what Paul's saying here, and he's not ashamed to say it. And these are people that at the time, their, their view toward Paul was anything but love coming back, at least most of them. And they've shown it. But Paul's saying, you might say what you want, I love you. Remember that biblical principle of a gentle answer turns away wrath? That one word right there. I think as they've had to read all this, and, and they probably are cringing a little bit, what is he doing to us? And then they read that one word, which basically it's, that, that's what he said. I love you guys. I'm doing this to help you. I'm not doing it because I hate you. I'm doing it because I love you. Verse 24, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I might find you to not be what I wish and may be found by you not to be what you wish. That perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. So having said, I've come to build you up. Having said, I want your spiritual victory. Having told him, I love you. He does recognize that there are problems. You know, one of the worst things that we can be is anybody in leadership, whether it's parental leadership or grandparents or a teacher at a school or a doctor in a clinic or in a hospital or a pastor standing in a pulpit. One of the worst things that we can do is not to take an objective view of the situation. Say, oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not fine at all. It's not fine in Corinth. So he can love them, but still objectively say, there's some work we have to do here. It makes sense. You've done it a hundred times as a parent, or if you hadn't done it as a parent, it's been done to you as a, from a loving parent or somebody else that mentored you. You've got to be objective, so you can't lie to them. You, you can't, you can't have, you try to be doing the alphabet and say A, B, F, G, H. Oh, that's wonderful, Johnny. Well, no, it's actually in the day A, B, C. No, no, that wasn't wonderful. You got it wrong. But you can lovingly tell them you got it wrong and say, this, it's okay. You, this whole idea in our culture where we can't say anything's wrong anymore, that postmodern idea, it is just destroying us at every level. I understand postmodernism has even worked its way into mathematics in colleges. Now, how that works, I'm not sure, but I understand it has. No, so he's saying, all's well, not well here. And he knows, because he's about to come and visit them, that something's got to get worked out. Because if they don't get it worked out before he gets there, this visit might be a tad bit uncomfortable. And in the beginning of the next chapter, Paul's going to say, this is the third time I'm coming to you. This, my, my upcoming visit will be the third time I visited. The first visit was when he founded the church. The second visit was when he came for that painful visit, and they ate him up and spit him out and sent him back to Ephesus. Now, this is the next time he's going to see him after this. So he's saying on this next visit, this could get a bit uncomfortable uh, you, you, I may not be what you want me to be. You probably won't be what I want you to be. We need to get this worked out. What I don't want to see is strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. That's not a very spiritual list, is it? And that's in a church. We don't think of churches that way, do we? Strife. Well, you certainly don't want that in a church. Jealousy. Angry tempers. Well, that'll tear a church up. I know of a church up in East Texas. It doesn't exist anymore. When I tell you this story, you'll know why it doesn't exist. Pastor went over to one of his deacons' home out in the country. Two deacons sitting on the front porch. They happened to be talking about the pastor when he walked up. He knew they were. They were about to, there was some strife in the church. One thing led to another. Pastor knocked both of them out. KO'd them, both. Church doesn't exist anymore. 
It can't exist in those circumstances. You just can't do it. And Paul's saying, I don't want that to be the case when I come to Corinth. Let's get this worked out. And all this, by the way, does this list sound familiar to you? It ought to. Strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, etc. It ought to. This, these are some of the things that Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 5 when he's listing the, the deeds of the flesh. So this is the polar opposite of spirituality. And remember in that same passage, what's the first of the fruits of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, rather, singular. It's love. So you have love and you have all this other stuff. They're not functioning in love. So at the end of verse 19, he's basically saying by calling them beloved, he said, I love you. I love you. He's also saying that I work for Jesus. I love him. And then in verse 20, he said, let's, let's get this right because we're not going to be able to, to advance this cause of Christ if we've got all this internal strife going on. Now, I don't see anything in here at all about murder and adultery. Of course, the adultery part is going to come in the next verse. But, but at, at first, what he lists first, all this fussing and fighting in the body of Christ. Remember what Jesus prayed in that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 before he goes to the cross? This is so astounding to me because if I know that I'm going to be crucified in about nine hours, boy, your, your mind's going to be racing, isn't it? It's going to be spinning with all kinds of thoughts, thoughts of past, present, family, whatever. You know, who, you know who Jesus was thinking about nine hours before he was crucified? You. He was, he was thinking about me. I have every confidence he was thinking about Pine Valley Bible Church because he could do that. And you know what he wanted for us? He wanted us to be set apart in the truth. He wanted us to be sanctified in the truth. That just means set apart in the truth. And you know what else? The primary reason he wanted us to be set apart in the truth? So that we would have a unity within the body of Christ that ex like that which exists in the truth. See, it's an important message, wasn't it? <laughs> Am I off? I can talk loud. I only got 10 minutes to go. He wanted a unity in the body of Christ that was found in the Trinity. That was the model. That's what he wanted. Can you hear me, Ken, back there? Can you hear me right now? Okay. Dissensions, anger, outbursts of anger. That wasn't going to work for him. So that's what he prayed for. And that's all Paul is doing here, too. He says in verse 21, I'm afraid. Do I need to quit yelling now? I'm afraid. <laughs> Good, because I didn't have a lot more in me. I was fixing to end this pretty quick. I'm afraid that, so now you got another 10 minutes, you see. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those of you who have sinned in the past and have not repented of. We'll get to those sins they haven't repented of in just a second, but I want you to see the first part. I'm afraid that when I come, God's going to humiliate me before you. Isn't that an odd thing to say at this point? It could be. But Paul knows his spiritual success and the Corinthians' spiritual success is not completely divorced from one another. He wants them to get it right. Now, when all is said and done, if, if he does everything he can for the folks and then they just completely reject God, then God understands that. But if they reject God because Paul gets, comes over and loses his temper with them, that doesn't work. So there's a lot at stake both places. I alluded to it a moment ago, but I want to circle back here as I close today and, and mention it to you again. Moses who very, may very likely be, aside from Jesus, the, humanly speaking, the greatest leader of all time, had to train for 40 years for his leadership position. 
when he finally gets it, he confronts Pharaoh, leads the Jews out in this incredible exodus, something that they remember for the rest of their history. Even today, they still stress the exodus. It's an incredible thing. They get out into the desert. They just witnessed the Red Sea, destruction of the entire Egyptian army, perhaps the most powerful military force on the planet at the time. And then they start complaining. We don't have any water. We don't have any food. Yeah. Over and over and over again, basically for 40 years, they're complaining. Moses keeps his cool for about 39 and a half of it. And then instead of speaking to the rock like he was told to on that last incident, he takes his stick, whacks the rock, and says these now are mortal words. Here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And God said, no, Moses. That's not what I told you to say. I gave you no authority to yell at my people like that. I gave you no authority to try to tear them down. Now, you, you might say, well, how do we know? Well, God thought he was tearing them down. <clears throat> That's how we know. Because God disciplined you can't go in the land. You, you took them all the way up here, but you don't get to see it. You don't, well, you got to see it, but you don't get to go in it. I think that's what is on Paul's mind as he closes this chapter out. I'm afraid that when I come, again, my, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those, many of you. Paul wants to get it right. He doesn't want to come in and lose his temper. The easiest thing in the world to do is somebody's yelling at you, you yell back at them. The most spiritual thing, somebody's yelling at you, you answer them with a gentle answer. And that's going to turn away the rat. It's counterintuitive, I know. And I know a bunch of you are looking up here saying, and he's preaching this. Yeah, I know. I've been to football games with you. All, all joking aside, I have. I have. It's been a long time. I'm glad David's out of school now. I'm much more spiritual than I used to be. But I'm not, you know, those, those are things I'm not proud of. That wasn't the right thing to do. You know, you, you don't answer in kind. You answer in gentleness. And so for those of you there, I apologize for that. It's 10 years later, but I do. That, that's, you just never should yell at anybody. And for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> now, now he brings up some ones that we might think, there's just no way these are being practiced in the church. I don't want to mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. The implication is they're still practicing it. When we very first started this study, in, way back in 1 Corinthians, we said one of the biggest problems in the Corinthian church was they were allowing the culture to seep in through the cracks in the wall. And it was part of the Corinthian, sensuality was part of the Corinthian culture, it was part of the Greek culture, it was really part of the Roman culture too, but especially it was part of the Greek culture. And, and so what he's saying is here, this, this I think goes all the way back to his first letter. We've got to get this right, guys. You can't, keep, you can't keep mimicking the culture and think you're being spiritual. Now, not everything about our culture is bad. There are some things that are. Our culture is increasingly not just post-Christian, but anti-Christian, in my view. It's, it's increasingly anti-Christian. Not everything in the culture is bad, but there are some things in the culture that never, never should creep in to the doors of the church. And these are some of them. Now, the first things were internal. These last things, I think, are external that have crept in. Impurity, immorality, sensuality, those are all sexual sins. Just same words. We, we could get into the specifics of that, but that's not my point this morning. They're, they're almost synonyms for the same activity, and that's in, inappropriate sexual activity. You see why most New Testament scholars would agree that the church at Corinth might have been the most unhealthy church of the ancient world. 
they have all this internal stuff going on, this strife, these, this strife, these angry tempers, these fights. And then on top of that, they have these things that have come in from the culture that they hadn't gotten rid of yet, these sexually perverse things that are going on. And we look at that and we say, why does Paul bother? You wonder why he bothers at all. Well, the reason he bothers is because he loves them. God loved the Corinthians in spite of strife, jealousy, angry tempers, and etc. He still loved them. He loved the Corinthians in spite of impurity, immorality, and sensuality that was being practiced in the church. He just wants them to get it right. That's what God's interested in. Jesus paid for all those sins on the cross. There is no unforgivable sin. The sin that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 12 is rejection of Christ. None of these sins are unforgivable. Just get it right. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. That's what a great leader is going to say. And Paul was a great leader. He genuinely cared about the spiritual status of those that he ministered to. Jesus wanted very much to see the spiritual success of the Corinthians. And therefore, Paul, because he loved Jesus, Paul wanted to see them succeed. Paul cared. And while it's not mentioned a lot in books on leadership, even those that you find at the Christian bookstore, Paul cared. And in the spiritual realm, that is an essential of good leadership. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that our Lord cared about us, that you cared about us so long ago that you sent your Son to die for us. We thank you that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son that that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. You sacrificed everything for us. That's the kind of leader you are. Father, you, you provided everything that we would need for salvation. And you did all the work so that we might just come to you and say, Yes, Father, I trust Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and to grant me eternal life. Thank you for that. And thank you for being who you are. And now help us in whatever realm of leadership we find ourselves in whether it's public or private, help us to model your sacrificial spirit, your love for us as we minister to others. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.